Hey there, fellow flyers. Welcome again to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer, and today is our fifth episode. We made it to five episodes. That's pretty good, right? Thanks to all of you out there that have been listening to the show, writing reviews on iTunes. We read them all, and we appreciate your thoughts and encouraging words. You can follow us and communicate with us on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod. Once again, our Twitter handle is Plane Crash Pod. If you haven't reviewed the show yet on Apple Podcasts, we'd greatly appreciate your time in doing so. On today's episode, we will be discussing Western Airlines Flight 2605, a scheduled flight from Los Angeles International to Benito Juarez International in Mexico City, early in the morning on October 31st, 1979. Before we get into that flight, I like to point out at the top of every podcast that we are aware that what we're discussing is a traumatic event in the lives of families and people out in the world. We have no intention of being insensitive or callous towards anyone that has been affected by these tragedies. We see these plane accidents as historical events, and we are interested in breaking down what happened, why it happened, how each accident helped shape the future of air travel. Each plane accident, though tragic, is an opportunity to make air travel safer for future generations. We can strive to not repeat mistakes from the past. I like to point out that I'm not a pilot. Through research, I'm learning more and more about how planes work, but I'm not an expert by any means. I use this podcast as a way to expose myself to something that I'm afraid of in the hopes that by learning more, I'll become less and less fearful of flying. And I'm hoping somebody else out there might find this podcast to be similarly useful. The more we learn about the improbability of being in a plane crash and the overall safety of air travel, the less we will be fearful of it. In a little bit, we will be joined by Eduardo Valenciana, a surviving flight attendant on Western Airlines Flight 2605. He has studied the crash for years and has the CVR recording in his possession. We're going to talk about what he thinks happened according to his knowledge, But first, I'm going to explain what happened according to the Mexican investigation and from news articles I read online. Western Airlines Flight 2605 was a scheduled flight from LAX to Benito Juarez in Mexico City on October 31, 1979. The plane, known as the Night Owl, took off from LAX at 1.40 a.m. and was scheduled to land in Mexico City shortly before dawn at around 5.45 a.m. There were 88 people on the plane, 75 passengers and a crew of 13. The plane was McDonnell Douglas DC-10. The DC-10 is a three-engine jet airliner with one engine on each wing and a third engine at the base of the vertical stabilizer. The vertical stabilizer is that part of the back of the plane that looks like a shark fin sticking straight up in the air. So the DC-10 has a third engine at the bottom of that fin. The DC-10 was first introduced into the commercial airline market in 1971. At this point in late 1979, the DC-10 had a bit of a checkered safety record. The plane had only been flown commercially for eight years, yet there had already been a number of plane accidents involving this particular model of plane. Its cargo door had a design flaw responsible for a few accidents, and in May of 1979, there was a major plane accident in Chicago involving a DC-10 that resulted in the death of 273 human beings. After the Chicago crash in May of 1979, the FAA grounded all DC-10s for about a month and a half to investigate and modify existing DC-10s to make them safer. 
So this flight in October of 1979 takes place only three months after the DC-10s had been grounded nationwide by the FAA because of safety concerns. The captain of the flight was Charles Gilbert Sr. He was 52 years old. He had a total of 31,500 flying hours, and he had worked for Western Airlines as a pilot for 30 years. He had flown the LAX to Mexico City route 350 times before. So he was a very experienced pilot. He had made 11 landings at Mexico City in September of 79 and four in October of 79. His first officer was a German-born 43-year-old man named Ernst Reichel. He had made 11 landings in Mexico City in August, four in October. He was based out of Seattle, and the flight engineer was Dan Walsh. He had 4,000 flight hours, six landings as a second officer in Mexico City in October of 79. So the plan for this flight crew was to fly from LAX, arrive early in the morning in Mexico City, let all the passengers deplane, fill the plane back up with passengers in Mexico City, and then fly back to LAX. So flight 2605 is the first of two legs for this flight crew. One thing to point out about Benito Juarez is that there are two runways there, 23L and 23R. No TAMs, or notices to airmen, which are news bulletins to pilots, were released on October 19, 1979, 12 days prior to this flight, that stated that 23L at Benito Juarez would be closed due to resurfacing of the runway. Despite these notices, on occasion over the prior 12 days, Mexico City was still using 23L. Both pilots, Gilbert and Reichel, had used the runway 23L inside those prior 12 days, this period of time when it had been declared closed. So there's understandably a bit of confusion in these pilots' minds. They're getting these printouts saying the runway is closed, but then they've been directed to use this supposedly closed runway. The night of the flight, they get another message saying 23L is closed. But it makes sense that they might not take it all that seriously, considering they've been getting messages for the past two weeks saying that it's closed, and they've then been directed to land or take off from the supposedly closed runway 23L. Another detail of interest is that the two pilots, the captain and the first officer, had recently had some friction in their working relationship together. The captain was known as a by-the-book professional pilot, and he had taken issue with what he perceived to be a lack of professionalism in his first officer. The captain had recently formally written up the first officer. A flight attendant mentioned that he had seen the two pilots arguing during the flight when he entered the cockpit to check in on them. So there's a little bit of friction between the two men responsible for flying the plane that night. So flight 2605 takes off from LAX a little behind schedule at 1.40 a.m. on October 31st, 1979. It's just a typical flight for the first three hours to Mexico City. There's no mechanical issues or bad weather along the route. But once they give, get above Mexico City three hours later, they encounter a thick fog. Visibility is very low. The pilots can't see, so they have to rely on flying by their instruments. At Benito Juarez, 23L, the closed runway, is the only runway at the airport that has an ILS, or an instrument landing system. An instrument landing system is a runway approach aid that allows pilots to make a landing using their instruments when visibility is low. ILS gives pilots both vertical and horizontal guidance during a landing via two radio beams. 
So there's heavy fog, the pilots can't see, and the plan for flight 2605 is to use the ILS to approach 23L, the closed runway, but the runway outfitted with the special radio beams that let them make an approach using their instruments. Then once they get close to the ground and can establish visual contact with the airport, they can reorient their airplane to land on 23R, the open runway to the right that they're cleared to land on, which runs parallel to 23L. This is called a sidestep maneuver. You approach one runway, and once you make visual contact with the airport, you redirect the plane to the parallel runway right next to it. Unfortunately, as the plane is descending towards the airport, the fog is getting thicker by the second. Visibility is next to zero, and the Mexican air traffic controller never uses the word sidestep. Eventually, multiple times, it's repeated that the flight is clear to land on 23R, but the air traffic controller never says sidestep. So you've got these tired pilots that have flown through the night. They're flying through a thick fog. They can't see anything. They've been arguing during the flight, supposedly, and have a bit of a strained professional relationship as of late. And they're following this approach to 23L, the closed runway that they've utilized in the past couple of days. Air traffic control notices that flight 2605's approach is well to the left of runway 23R, the runway they've been cleared to land on. Air traffic control says, Western 2605, you're to the left of the track. The controller is trying to say, you're well to the left of runway 23R. The first officer, Reichel, replies, yeah, we know, just a little bit. Now, what this seems to say is that that first officer thinks the plane is a bit to the left of runway 23L. He's talking about 23L. They're approaching 23L and don't realize that 23R is where they need to land the plane. The tower then says there is a layer of fog over the field and asks the pilots if they can see their approach lights. Both pilots reply negative. The plane's only 7,300 feet away from the runway when the air traffic controller finally gets more specific and says, approach lights are on 23 left, but that runway is closed to traffic. So the plane is about to land on 23L because the pilots have been using the 23L instrument approach, and right when they're about to arrive at the runway, the air traffic controller finally becomes abundantly clear and says, 23L's closed to traffic. The captain replies, we're clear on the right, we're clear on the right, is that correct? The first officer says, the other runway, and the flight engineer says, yeah, the right. The plane's about to land on 23L. They still can't see, and the captain finally realizes the mistake, that they're approaching 23L, and he says, no, this is an approach to the goddamn left. So now the plan is to do a go-around, because they've been following the wrong approach, And the first officer says, yeah, climb to 8,500. But it seems as though the pilots were unaware how close they were to the ground because of the fog so thick. They can't see anything. They've been looking out the window, expecting to see the airport and runways, but they just see fog. The plane suddenly has a very hard landing to the left of 23L. The left wheels of the plane's landing gear touch in the grass to the left of 23L, and the right wheels of the plane's landing gear touch down on the left shoulder of runway 23L. The flight engineer says, no visibility here. And then the captain screams, oh no, because unbeknownst to him, ahead on runway 23L is a parked dump truck. The engines are finally set to full thrust to try and get off the ground, but it's too late, 
and the right landing gear wheel strike the dump truck, killing a man that was inside the dump truck and tearing the right landing gear wheels from the plane. This collision also took off the right horizontal stabilizer of the tail of the plane. The plane is once again airborne, but a few hundred feet later, the plane's right wing strikes an excavator that was parked on the runway as well. The plane takes a hard right turn, hard enough to the point that the right wing is digging into the ground next to 23L, and eventually runs into a number of parked cars, an airport repair hangar, before colliding with a concrete two-story building where airline offices existed. A lot of the concrete from the building collapsed down on the front of the plane, and most of the plane was engulfed in fire. There were 17 survivors initially, and they were generally located towards the back of the plane. One person died a few weeks after the incident due to injuries. A part of the left wing of the aircraft flew into a nearby residential neighborhood and started a fire. Afterwards, the investigation was handled by Mexican authorities, There was a bit of controversy. First off, um, Mexican authorities refused to let any American investigators have access to the crash site. The crash site itself was not properly closed off to the public. It became a spectacle of sorts, with Mexican police officers bringing family and acquaintances to come check out the crash site. So you had the Mexican public possibly contaminating the accident site. Mexican investigators quickly deemed the cause of the accident to be pilot air, but they refused to let anyone interview any of the employees in the uh, air traffic control tower at the time of the incident. The Airline Pilots Association did their own investigation, and while they acknowledged that the pilots made some mistakes and landed on the wrong runway, they argued that the flight was given an incorrect approach for 23L as opposed to 23R. And the air traffic control employee never clearly stated that it was a sidestep approach to 23R. Due to the accident, the FAA handbook was revised to include separate standardized instrument approach charts for all airports that utilize a sidestep maneuver, and a circular was published with more information in general about sidestep approach procedures. So that was the story of Western Airlines Flight 2605. Today we have a special guest on the podcast. He was a flight attendant on Western Airlines Flight 2605. He is author of a great new book that I just finished reading this past week entitled Jump Seat, A Tale of Twisted Fate. Joining us today is Eduardo Valenciana. How are you doing, Eduardo? I'm doing very good. Thank you for having me on the podcast, sir. Thanks for joining. Um, Your book was great, by the way. I found it to be really interesting. But uh, more than interesting, I thought it was a great insight to... Someone that's had to deal with PTSD. It seems like at the time of the accident um, and afterwards, you were living in a world that didn't probably have as much awareness of mental health issues. And I felt like your book really kind of tackled that issue, gave good insight to how people's minds work after they have to deal with you know a traumatic event like this. I think it'll be useful to a lot of people that uh, you know might have had to go to war, or had you know a, a traumatic event in their life. And then uh, I agree, and, and it's, it's, you know, uh, people say uh, w- with PTSD, uh, really you are uh, responding normally to an abnormal situation. And back when this incident occurred and I survived the plane crash, uh, PTSD was basically uh, only uh, regarded or spoken about dealing with the Vietnam vets. 
Mm-hmm. And I was very fortunate in that uh, my first physician, my first doctor, was Dr. Joseph Rammeljack, who was head of psychiatrics at UCLA's Veteran Hospital. So I was uh, very fortunate that I was able to get under the guidance of someone that was at that time, you know, the, the a known expert in the field. So Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like when I was reading the book, I felt like... Uh, Time and time again, it seemed like you almost felt guilty for having the emotions of somebody that went through this traumatic event. You talk about oh, it, it, th- this. It wasn't. It wasn't just almost feel. I felt guilty. Period. In fact, if you remember in the book, I was. Uh, you know, when I found myself buried under the uh, burning rubble, I I was felt an instant of upset that I was still alive. And uh, even even uh, in the hospital later on, I uh, I wanted to go with my crew. So the PTSD crept in very early, uh, and uh, also you know what people refer to as survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was overwhelming. In fact, in uh, the first page of my book, I think I I wrote that uh, I w- had the good fortune and the bad fortune to survive. Yeah. So yeah, uh, it's uh, yeah that definitely the guilt the guilt syndrome definitely plays heavy on on someone that uh, goes through an event like this. Yeah. Another thought that I had while reading it was that the voice of the author is your voice. It it sounds so mature and adult. And I know you wrote the book fairly recently, but one thing that kind of struck me was even when you talked about your time with Western Airlines that you, you know, had a lot of pride in providing your customers with a, you know, the most professional um, job that you could possibly do for them. And it just struck me that when it came down to it, you were a guy in his 20s, you know, you were, to me, I was, you know, an idiot when I was in my 20s. <laughs> and for you to have to deal with that at such a young age, and also, um, um, it just seemed like, you were just a kid and this happened. It seemed like it would be a pretty difficult thing for a kid to navigate. And that is that is true to a great extent. The one advantage I did have is prior to my airline, uh, joining the airlines and my airline experiences, and even up until the crash, I had done a tremendous amount of, of international traveling. I had been to the Middle East. I had been to Africa. I'd been to uh, places. So I was uh, I was aware uh, how things uh, operate sometimes on an international basis. And uh, in Mexico, uh, since I uh, am of Hispanic uh, descent and uh, and I understand the language, uh, I was very aware also of the culture and how things operate in Mexico. So that gave me a, a sense of confidence in, in, in helping me to uh, my journey, my survival journey in dealing with what I had to deal with down there. And as you read in the book, I had to deal with quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, do you, it seemed kind of absurd to me. I don't want to spoil the book too much for people. Um, but it seemed absurd to me that you dealt with so many traumatic events in one night. I think if you could have just skipped the plane crash and just gone into you know being roughed up by Mexican police and being interrogated and basically tortured that that in and of itself is you know hard to deal with. It just seems like i don 't know how you kept it all together. I think it 's highly admirable 
Well, I, uh, I've always said at some point that, you know, even though the actual physical crash of the jumbo jet was uh, horrific, and I remember everything, I've always told people that uh, the crash was the easy part. Mm-hmm. Everything that came afterwards, that was the true test of, uh, of the survival. And, uh, you know, even for years to come. And, uh, you know, people do not realize sometimes when they get on an airplane, even today, that once you leave the borders of, of, of the United States, all of the rules and regulations that cover the airline industry and the airline system dramatically change in, uh, in foreign countries. You don't mm-hmm. have the uh, specific uh, safety regulations and uh, uh, pristine uh, facilities that help uh, make uh, the airline industry and, and uh, air, uh, air travel as safe as we have it in this country. So, uh, you know, it's uh, a lot of things to think about when you, uh, when you cross borders sometimes, you know, and, and survival, the survival instinct in me kicked in and, and I was willing to do or have to endure whatever I had to endure to, to quote, you know, live another day. Yeah, no, I thought there was a number of factors that from your book seem to have contributed to the fact that you survived. I thought it was uh, interesting that you were in a bodybuilding competition just weeks before the... Just, yeah, nine, nine days. Nine, nine days before the accident. It was like you were training to go through what you eventually had to go through. Mm-hmm. And it was also interesting that, you know, some of it could have just been luck. It seemed like that night you wanted to do the first class cabin and then a girl needed to be trained. Is that correct? She went That to, is correct. And, and she switched, ended we up... switched stations. She went into the first class station at at door 1R on a DC-10, and I went aft, all the way aft to door 4R. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that definitely played a played a significant uh, part in my survival. Yeah, it seems like being in the back of the plane and uh, being this guy that was super fit, you were able to, you know, get out of it. It's Do you, do you those remember... Were, those, they definitely played a part. Do you remember anything... From the flight from LAX to Mexico City, was it was there any turbulence? Or did it just um, did you have to fly through clouds the entire time? Was it only towards the end that the fog occurred? Uh, no, no, it was only at the end that the fog occurred. And again, I remember everything. I remember specifically everything that occurred on that flight. And uh, you know, in Mexico City, of course, you know, in the old days, if you if you read about the the stories of uh, Cortez, you know, Mexico City was was built on this big, huge lake. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, 500 years later, the lake uh, has dried up. But at, uh, at night, uh, with the weather and the altitude, especially the altitude of Mexico City, you have a lot of fog that builds up in the uh, leg, uh, lake bed there, and it rolls into the airports. Uh, the airport is out by the uh, uh, lake bed, and it rolls into the airport. And unfortunately, at that specific time, the uh, all of the equipment that dealt with uh, reading the weather and so on was a mile located a mile and a half from the airport tower. 
Mm-hmm. So there would always be a delay in in getting the right information to the tower and the tower operator who then could relay it to the uh, flights that were inbound into the city. Yeah. So there, it was pretty a pretty normal flight, you would say, from um, LAX, but, with it, not considering the fact that you had, you know, flight your fellow well, flight attendants. Well, it was not. It was it was normal as far as it was flying, but then uh, it there was abnormal seas in the beginning, uh, which again I uh, it's hard to explain, but. Uh, you had a, a crew member, a flight attendant, who all of her life had premonitions of being killed in a plane crash. Mm-hmm. And uh, after discussing this quite extensively with her family, I have uh, seen uh, writings that she made all her life. And she actually predicted that uh, she would be killed in a flight 265. Mm-hmm. But uh, And she told a lot of people. But then... Uh, when we looked up the timetable on Western Airlines uh, for Western Airlines flight, there was no t- flight two six five to be uh, to be found. So we, you know, we just took it as being nerves. A lot of times, there's flight attendants, there's people, flight crews who maybe have a feeling or they get a little jitter sometimes if we hit turbulence. But uh, this particular flight to Mexico was flight six oh five. Now the flight was coming in from Honolulu. And then uh, it would be cleaned and, and sent down to Mexico City. But the flight that came in from Honolulu was delayed. And it was so filthy from the flight that there was a decision made by the company to switch aircraft. Mm-hmm. Now, whenever an aircraft is switched, you must also change the flight numbers. Mm-hmm. And the most convenient thing to do is to throw another digit in front of the original flight numbers Mm -hmm. so flight 605 immediately became flight 2605 which gets you still the the 265 is in there exactly and she was uh, the spanish speaker on the flight Mm -hmm. uh, and she was the one who noticed the boarding passes that the number had been changed oh man changed and this brought about uh, great anxiety in her which she brought up to me Mm -hmm. and of course once she brought it up to me, then she shared her anxiety with me. Yeah, suddenly you I have the, that thought in your head the entire time. I don't want to be on a plane where somebody thinks they're going to die. Yeah. Now, um, another aspect that occurred on the flight was there was another flight attendant who had been desperately trying to... Uh, get out of flying and become a gate agent. She wanted to become a gate agent. And I found this kind of odd because I'd flown with her many times before. She was a good friend. And I asked her, I said, why do you want to do this? And she was hesitant to say why. And then finally, I got it out of her. She said, well, my mother is extremely worried. I said, your mother's extremely worried. I said, why is she extremely worried? And uh, she said, because uh, she's afraid of something. I said, afraid of what? She goes, well, she's afraid. I'm kind of embarrassed to say it. I said, what? Afraid of what? I mean, what? A crash? And she goes, yes. How did you know? So here I have two separate people on two separate occasions that that have great anxiety from fear of being involved in a plane crash. 
Mm-hmm. And this really set a tone and an atmosphere that was very uncomfortable, very, uh, uh, but very, very much present. You know, it wasn't anything, you know, the people, it was a regular night flight, the flight left after midnight. Most of the passengers were asleep. Uh, the flight was smooth the whole way going. But here, there's an anxiety. There's a fear. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did not know how I how to handle it. I naturally just uh, ignored it because I told myself, this ain't going to happen. I'm not going to die. Uh, we're going to be on the ground in Mexico City soon. And all of this will kind of be just uh, brushed away and laughed at and uh, mm. whatever. And then you so, also went and eventually uh, you... We're in the cockpit that night as well. Well, then, then that. This is what drove the anxiety that these two girls felt drove me to try to find a safer, a safe place, somewhere to kind of get away. And it's common for a flight crew member to maybe, uh, especially if the flight is an all-nighter and people are asleep, to maybe spend a little time in the cockpit. You can look down at the lights and enjoy the view. And uh, so I went up into the cockpit, and uh, to get into a cockpit, there's usually a code, a sequence of chimes that have to be pressed into the cockpit for the uh, for them to open the door. And I uh, did the series of chimes, and uh, nothing happened. And I did it again, and the, and nothing again happened. The door would not open. So finally, the door opened, and then it closed. And I what's the heck's going on? And mm-hmm. the door opened again, and as soon as I walked in, I walked into the cockpit right in the middle of a confrontation where the captain was uh, reprimanding the first officer. Oh. And this was not a good sign. No, I, I'd prefer that the captain and first officer were worried about flying the plane. Instead. Well... I wasn't quite sure of anything. I didn't know if the argument was a personal nature. I don't know if it was Dale, if it if it was related to uh, their performance or some specific incident going on at that moment. Uh, once I walked in and the reprimanding stopped, it got really quiet. And uh, I stood in there for about 15 minutes and it was so quiet. Uh, no conversation that finally it, it, the the stillness and the fact that nobody would say a word that caused even more anxiety. And so I came out and I said, what in the heck is going on here? Mm-hmm. I, I can't believe that something horrific is going to happen. And even if I did believe that something horrific was going to happen, who am I going to tell? I can't stop this airplane. I can't say, hey, stop. I think there's going to be a crack. Man. I can't say any of this. That's so unusual un- that you had the vibe that something was about to happen before it happened. Well, this actually played a part as we descended and were coming in for final approach. Uh, two significant things happened. <clears throat> I I was the last crew member to take my jump seat, to sit down. I walked around the entire aircraft to check everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, the one girl uh, who 
believed she would be killed on flight 265. She was strapped into her jump seat, and I checked to make sure everything was secure. And, uh, and then uh, I asked her, and I said, uh, you know, th this is not going to be the flight. And I said, uh, because I'm not going, I don't feel like I'm going to die. And she turned to me and she said, well, if you feel that way, then you're not going to die. And it's still, that even kind of freaked me out. Yeah. So when I got to my jump seat, finally got to my jump seat, and again, as you know, flight attendants, they don't wear seatbelts. They wear harnesses. Mm -hmm. And as we were coming down, close to touchdown, I got into my jump seat, and I used all my strength to tighten my, my harness as tight as I could possibly make it to secure me as tight as possible. In fact, I did it so tight, I could barely breathe. And for an instant, I thought of loosening it, loosening it a bit mm -hmm. because I was having a hard time breathing. But we were so close to the ground that I decided, no, just let it be and I'll ride it out. And then that's uh, as we uh, touched down. And when you touched down, it was pretty hard, right? No, no. The, well, the first, the first, at first, it wasn't anything as we were coming down. And I didn't realize that we were going we to be touching down. And then all of a sudden, bam, just a massive, massive hit. I wasn't quite sure. What I thought it was was that we had just touched down awfully hard onto the runway. Mm -hmm. And then the plane kind of jumped up. And again, as you know, flight attendants face rear. They face aft. They're not facing forward. So I strained to kind of look out the side window and as, uh, as I thought we had just gone up and that we were going to come back down again, that's uh, usually, that happens quite a bit. Sometimes people experience a hard landing, it goes back up, and then it comes down to a soft landing. Yeah. And then uh, I saw there was a clip, a, 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 uh, like a little fire clip on the, on the right wing. And so I thought that maybe we had, that, that the wing may have clipped some obstacle on the side of the runway. And I thought that, uh, okay, okay, we're, we went back up. Now what's going to happen? You know, and it kind of, nothing happened for quite a long, a few seconds, which is a long time. And then uh, all of a sudden, the plane just jerked back up. The aircraft jerked back up and the engines just roared just roared and i thought okay he's getting us out of here we're going back up it must have been a uh, a, a missed approach mm -hmm. and uh he was you know would go back around and as i turned back aft and there was no there was no passengers behind me because i was in the very aft mm -hmm. i saw the floor starting to crack open oh my god and i saw oh dear lord and then it went up the wall and then there is the number two engine, which sits high above in the aft. Mm -hmm. That exploded. And there was a fuel line that shot out, and it looked like a snake whirling with the fire. And then there was a giant fireball that formed and just shot to the from the rear to the front of the cabin. And took part of my clothing and singed all my hair, mm -hmm. singed my hair. And then uh, it started to shift away. That whole ash section started to break up. And then there was another explosion in the front. 
and there was another fireball that shot through. And at this point, I was pinned against my jump seat. My uh, face was turned inward as the total G-force just pressed heavily. And then I saw body parts just shooting through like missiles. Shoot, shoot, shoot. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, everything just stopped. Boom, just stopped. And it was just fuel, jet fuel everywhere, fire everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I was still strapped to the back of the jump seat. And I was realized I was laying on tarmac and I saw a lot of concrete and a lot of iron. And so I estimated that we had struck buildings. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment that I really was kind of pissed off because I thought to myself, holy Toledo, I've survived and now I'm going to burn like a rat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I struggled to see if, if I was injured to try to, I finally undid the, the, the harness and there was fire in three sections on three sides and uh, and I, I had to just go in the direction that was the darkest part. I couldn't see where, where it led. And it was just rubble, just rubble. And I started to dig, started to dig. And I couldn't move some of the concrete blocks that were there. Mm-hmm. And I tried and I tried and I couldn't. And I realized I started to panic. And I thought, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And then I realized, hey... I lift, I lift every day. I lift weights every single day. I'd just been in a major bodybuilding contest and I tried then to re- reverse my body and squat, squat the piece of, of concrete and move it just a few inches where I could sneak out into an opening where I saw a star. And, uh, I did and I realized then that all of those months of training really hadn't been for a bodybuilding contest. <laughs> And I slipped through the hole and tumbled down. And that's when I saw the total inferno that was going by through the mess that was happening. And then, to my surprise, I saw three figures come up. One was a witch. One was a werewolf. And one was some type of goblin. Mm -hmm. And I realized it's Halloween. Oh, God. And in Mexico City, El Dia de los Muertos, they have the big El Dia de los Muertos parades. They go, everybody's dress was dressed up for the parades. Mm-hmm. And it hit me that, man, I am in a city that 500 years ago, they used to do human sacrifice. Yeah. And now you've got this uh, inferno of, of, of broken, uh, broken jumbo jet and destroyed buildings uh, just blazing. And... Uh, that was uh, that oh. was my initial. That uh, is uh, experience. I guess all those things are tied together now. I mean, um, it seems like forever Halloween and a plane crash is tied together in your mind. I, I, oh, and for many many years, as you saw in the book, I assume, of course you know Halloween. All the stores start to put out all their Halloween advertisements usually at the end of September and so naturally no matter where I would be as soon as that stuff would came up I would start to have that they they acted as triggers for the PTSD yeah and of course these were major this would cause major anxiety major dysfunction in me major problem now an added thing that happened 
that no that few people know about uh and that is i have again i have no conclusion on the facts that i'm going to give you mm-hmm. but it is just simply a fact my accident occurred on october 31st 1979 since then including my crash to this day there have been six six major airline disasters on halloween uh, yeah. some of the most notable is the air egypt flight that was taken into the atlantic ocean back in uh, the beginning of the century that was halloween the most recent one was the the metrojet uh, russian flight that was over the sinai that was blown up by terrorists that was halloween there was well, there was a, a, D, a 747 in in taiwan china and taiwan uh, uh taipei taiwan that uh again had had a crash at the airport mm-hmm. there was a a, fly, a a flight over brazil that was lost and the all of these flights uh included major deaths major fatalities and all of them have happened on halloween so, so it's almost like over a... the last 40 years and this year this halloween will be 40 years since my experience over the last 40 years not only did i have to deal with the halloween problem but then i would wake up on halloween five more times to have to deal with the photos and the disaster of major airline crashes on the television. Yeah, it's almost like a double trigger, you know. I would imagine yes. every plane crash probably affects you. Like, That's true, even if it's not it's on double, Halloween. It's a double dose if it happens on Halloween. Yeah, in your book you even mentioned other times that um, I think you went to Magic Mountain, some amusement park in LA and the people on the roller coaster would go, you know, steaming down at a fast speed screaming and just that those screams made you kind of recall the plane crashes what was always uh, a problem was that at the end of the tape and again it's an ugly 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 uh last 23 seconds uh you're you're listening to three men screaming going to their deaths yeah and uh at the end of it as it ended there was always a split second of multiple voices like a warpness it was uh, uh, and i remember talking to mexican officials and talking to other people uh investigators you couldn't figure out what the heck that was you know maybe it was just a, a technical glitch in the uh, in the black box and uh, nobody knew but when i went to magic mountain with my young son we were sitting by the old colossus roller coaster they used to have and once the cars would reach the top and race down the other side the people would be screaming but the car would be moving so fast there'd be a warp in the screaming oh, oh. and i said to myself oh, that's the sound that's on the tape and then i put it all together as the jumbo jet was plowing itself into the buildings the microphone in the cockpit remained on just long enough to catch the screaming voices of first class coming through oh, that's what the multiple voices are i think also in your book you mentioned that at times you went to 
while you had layovers, you would go to you know the not so nice parts of town and. Kind, oh kind yeah, of, I became I became very dysfunctional in many places all over the world. Yeah. I uh, and it accelerated to the point where then I was taking my free time to go to many many dangerous places uh, uh, and exhibit my dysfunction. I finally got to the point where I wanted a confrontation with death, and of course yeah. that's not a that's not a healthy. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think it's a, a valuable insight as to how the mind works once you deal with something as traumatic as that. Of right, you know, right. almost wanting to relive the experience to see if you can, you know, constantly correct well, it or something. Also, the fact that the investigation was such a mess and that uh, misinformation was coming out, uh, the gover- the Mexican government basically used its. Uh, it's political power to uh, force the airline to take the blame, even though it was our top safety pilot. Uh, the, they forced the U.S. government to turn their turn their head on it because, the as as outlined in the book, uh, Mexico and the United States had recently just uh, finalized a big natural gas deal. Yeah. So uh, these things were done so that the Mexican U.S. relations wouldn't be upset. But the problem was, like I said, I lost dear friends on that plane mm-hmm. their families were lied to and their families were not told the truth of the yeah. reality and no in fact I... if you look if you look at the final at the final uh, mexican uh, report the official report it is uh, truly a sham uh, with mm-hmm. so many mistakes in it that was so, one other aspect i wanted to get into it with you i mean based upon the information i've read i've read some reports and uh, articles online and you, out of anybody, have studied this crash more than anybody. Um, do you? What are your feelings about the uh, investigation reports? What part of it is accurate? What part of it's inaccurate? What do you believe are the responsible factors for bringing down the plane? Well, the the problem was is one of the major problems was is that that runway had there was a what is called nomads uh, notice to airmen that uh, that runway was going to have construction for a period approximately of three weeks. Now, when those things are done, like on the United States, they close the runway, they put a flashing X at each end of the runway so that yeah. it can be seen for miles in the skies. Mm-hmm. Well, none of those things are ever done in Mexico. Uh, it was basically uh, they shut it down. When they decided to shut it down, they opened it, brought flights in, brought flights in, and then, oh, well, we're going to shut it down again, and they uh, shut it down again. And so... In fact, a Mexicana uh, flight from Los Angeles, a DC-10, landed exactly 18 minutes before we did. Yeah, I saw so that. So they were they were accepting uh, they were accepting traffic on that flight. Then all of a sudden, they decided, well, we're going to shut it down. Well, this was already after they had uh, air traffic control AT- ATC had cleared uh, our flight to uh, for final approach into that particular runway. Because did they? That particular- did Mexicana, yep. that one Mexicana plane, did that land on 23L for sure? It sure did. Yeah, oh, it yeah. landed on 23L. So and, they, in uh, that in that period that of time. That is the only runway that has the beacon that can yeah. guide the, uh, the computerized So you're saying in, in between that time that the Mexicana flight landed uh, 20 minutes later, in that 20 minutes they moved a dump truck and an excavator onto that runway in that period of time and just decided to start prepping for construction. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And, and they did not tell the captain. They did not tell the, uh, and then it was not until, and again, 
the main how I know all of this and not speculation. Mm-hmm. I have the CVR recording. I yeah. still have it. I I've got to be the only flight attendant who has the CVR recording of a major air disaster. Did they? Um, was there? I, I mean, from what I've read online, as far as articles that I've read, that it says that time that there were several times that the air traffic controller said. Um, you're cleared for 23R, though he never specifically used the word sidestep, and they gave them the approach to 23L that I think I read in one flight magazine that there was four different times that the air traffic controller said, you're cleared to land on 23R, but he just never really got super specific and said, you know, this is a sidestep approach. We've given you the approach to 23L, and eventually you're going to have to get to 23R. It seemed, um, is that correct or is that incorrect? That is false. There is oh, absolutely really? nothing in the CVR that states that. Mm-hmm. The first time that Captain uh, Charlie Gilbert was ever told that the runway was closed was eight seconds before touchdown. Oh, yeah. Where the, here's the other thing. The actual words of the tower is, is that runway is closed to traffic, but the lights are on. Mm-hmm. So not only did they go to close the runways, but they had the lights on a closed runway. So if you're a pilot, you're coming in, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're, you're looking for the lights. And, and of course, if it's under construction, you're not going to have any lights that are on and you're going to have the big X that's flashing at each end. Yeah. Well, none of that stuff is done. And then to make insult even worse is the Minister of Transportation of Mexico put out an affidavit that the lighting on on that runway 23 left had been, been disassembled three weeks prior, which is which a lie. Is totally because ridiculous. We because have if the that air, had yeah. happened, if that had happened, the Mexicana flight would never have been able to land 18 minutes before we did. Yeah. Well, so it was a total a total cover up. Again, no U.S. investigation. So you think uh, the the ever the, allowed the, on the site. the information out there saying that. Uh, there was four different times that they were told 23R is the uh, runway to land on. That information is just misinformation that's been put out by the Mexican government. That is what is in the Mexican official report. Mm-hmm. Now, here's an interesting aspect. Under the agreement, which is called the Warsaw Agreement, where all the countries uh, agree on, uh, the, on, on procedures when a major crash happens, the host country, which is most Mexico, has the right to do the official investigation. But if that investigation is flawed, if there is any discrepancies, the U.S. airline that involved and the U.S. government and the airline maker, which was at that time McDonnell Douglas, mm-hmm. has the right to challenge the investigation. In this case, no challenge was made. Basically, mm-hmm. the Mexico told uh, told the airline, uh, you're going to take the blame on this or else you won't be doing business in Mexico. And what's even more interesting is that after all the lawsuits were settled, Western Airlines was the only U.S. airline to receive new routes into the Mexican Riviera at Mazatlan, Puerto Vallarta, and Zihuatanea. So you're saying they got their payment for being, exactly. being good mm-hmm. and playing ball. To me, everything that I learned, everything that I could research, uh, seemed to be there was like this universal consensus that they were told you could land on uh, 23R a number of times. seems like a big narrative of this flight is that 
you know, the sidestep maneuver, the sidestep approach. And you're saying that that's baloney, that that's just the excuse that was invented to, you know, take some of the heat off of the Mexican. Well, just as in the book that they tried to get me to sign an affidavit that I served liquor to the pilots during the flight. Yeah. In fact, there are, there are several reports in Mexican newspapers that are claiming that the pilots were drunk. And that mm-hmm. that was the very first, uh, that was what the Mexicans were running with in the beginning. And then uh, secondly, and then the other thing is interesting concerning the sidestep maneuver. Uh, again, in the cockpit, the pilots never once discussed, there's not one word regarding any sidestep maneuver. There's not one word from the air traffic control mm-hmm. uh, discussing a sidestep maneuver or from the Mexican power. So all of that was added to the Mexican uh to the Mexican report, and uh, again, no U.S. investigator was yeah. ever allowed on the craft. What side. about the uh, airline pilots association report? That uh, report, I think, it made some concessions. I thought that said, you know, the pilots they landed on the wrong runway, but they were given an approach to twenty three L. That seemed to be kind of their red flag or their smoking gun to say. You can't pin this on the pilots and call it pilot error because they were given an approach to 23L all along. Um, and that that's true. And that that report came out later on because, again, finally, the air traffic, uh, the airline pilots association uh, decided, you know, we can't accept this. In fact, OK, I am quoting from from that report. OK. After an extensive investigation, the Airline Pilots Association is unable to determine a precise probable cause of this accident. It most probably falls into the human factor operational category. But because investigators were withheld from making a complete and thorough examination of the aircraft, wreckage, crash site, and airport facilities, it will never be accurately determined to what extent the aircraft or the approach facilities contribute to this disaster. Yeah. Quote, unquote. So in some level, we just will probably never know exactly what happened because the uh, investigation was tainted and there's kind of multiple narratives of what is out there. It seems like the FAA responded to this crash by, you know, saying, oh, people need to know more about sidestep maneuvers and we need to put approach charts in, you know, the handbook. Um, well, what's what's also interesting is I have a letter from the U.S. Uh, the uh, from the U.S. government to the National Transportation Safety Board, mm-hmm. which is the agency that uh, conducts investigations, and they basically are saying when you go down to Mexico, telling their investigators when you go down to Mexico. Don't look too closely. Let this be a Mexican show. This yeah. was done so that U.S. investigators would not, uh, so that U.S.-Mexican relations would not be upset. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, you know, that was the priority. And, uh, and basically, you know, my, uh, my crewmates, the victims, were all basically fodder for a, a political gain and and a lie mm-hmm. that uh, that has continued for almost 40 years yeah the one last uh, th- uh thing i want to talk to you about is from reading about this plane crash I, I read some you know different articles online and one of them said that typically the first officer is supposed to announce altitudes basically be able to say like 900 feet 800 feet 
700 feet. And then once you get below 100, you go to 90, 80, 70. And it um, seemed as though because the plane landed where it landed, um, partially in the grass, partially on the shoulder of 23L, it seemed as almost, you know, the pilots might have been, you know, unaware of how close they were to the ground. It seems as though they landed pretty hard on the ground and didn't well, land even on the on the runways. Yeah. So it made me think that the pilots, you know, were tired. They had been up through the night. They obviously had some discord between each other. And then they land kind of partially in the grass and in the shoulder. And it seemed like the landing is also described as pretty hard. So I thought maybe the fog had caused them to have some level of being disoriented and not really realizing that they should be aware of their altitude. It seemed like a surprise to them when they did land. Is that correct or incorrect? Well, it's, it, it, the facts of how it did land is correct, but the reasons are incorrect. Uh, the reason they landed off just a touch of the runway is because it was later discovered that the ILS system, the system on 223 left, which brings the craft in, was off by two degrees. This was corrected by U.S. investigators for the Mexican government after the crash. Mm-hmm. And concerning the pilots... This is the one. This was the information that the airline withheld. Uh, there had been difficulties between the pilots and uh, between the pilots uh, all month. And uh, the first officer actually wrote up. I mean, the the captain. The captain actually wrote up, wrote up a disciplinary report against the first officer. Mm-hmm. And that disciplinary report, that disciplinary hearing was actually conducted just hours before the flight left Mm -hmm. uh, Los Angeles. So here you had two gentlemen who, uh, who did not like each other Yeah, and they're, they're put together by the airline. And they're not going to have a good working relationship. Exactly. And so that invited disdain to Mm -hmm. write jump seat in the cockpit. Just, yeah, just another element of being confused and distracted when you need people to be, you know, laser focused exactly i agree to what extent that contributed we'll never know because again like i said everything was withheld it was determined pretty quickly by the mexican government where they were going to go with this Mm -hmm. and again uh you know as one as one person told me you know to blame the to blame the dead pilots is easy because dead men make terrible witnesses yeah they can't explain the situation or what that was going on they can't defend themselves yeah i I don't want to yeah no i was that's why i wanted to talk to you was to kind of get to the bottom of it and uh there isn't a lot of information online about this particular crash there's a good article and i think it was like flying magazine that i read and uh you know based upon the stuff that you see uh, to me the biggest word that's synonymous with this flight given the information out there is sidestep sidestep maneuver and they say all along that the um Mexican air traffic controller never explicitly said the word sidestep. It was only in the very last minute that he said 23 L is closed to traffic. And then all of a sudden that, that is, that is it. He never, never in the, not even in the CVR recording did Mm -hmm. any Mexican, the air traffic control or the tower ever even say 23, right. They never said 23 R. Because no, everything did. you see online says that they said it four times, but you're saying no, you have the no. recording and they never say the 23R. Right, and this is this is what the Mexicans indicated, and this is what they wanted to go. 
and they basically were holding all of the uh, all of the marbles. And yeah. they uh, they told the airline, "You go with this," and they told the U.S. government, "You go with this." And uh, I have, uh, and a lot of people lost their lives because of it. Yeah, and of course, yeah. And it's <laughs> and just got- <laughs> to me, it's also like we the, yes there's a procedure to follow but it's also the fog you know i'm sure the thing that i thought uh was the mexicano flight landed uh, 20 minutes earlier and if this flight could have happened a half an hour in either direction you know the sun comes up maybe burns off some of the fog or a half an hour earlier that wasn't as foggy i feel like you know the um, lack of visibility really was a major issue you're correct, and uh, and and I have the CVR recording, and the and the tower tells the cockpit that they had two and a half miles visibility, and the reality was they had zero visibility. They had zero. So they were, so they were given misinformation. Yeah. Do do you uh, agree with the assessment that they when they landed they they weren't exactly aware of their altitude that it was a surprise to them to some degree that the runway was as close as it was? No. What I think what they were surprised at is if they already had determined that's when the captain first finds out he's coming on the runway. He says, uh, this is the approach to the goddamn left. Mm -hmm. And before they even touch down, he already initiated the missed approach procedure. He says, take, take it up to, take it up to 8,600. So they were in the process of doing it. So what I think what it was, was they were surprised that they did touch down when they were already in already, uh, called for the missed approach uh, uh, procedure. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to the CBR, they're really, really surprised when they hit the they hit the dump truck. But because there was zero visibility, mm-hmm. they never saw the truck the dump truck on the runway. Yeah, is it is it true that there is supposed to be this countdown of altitude at all? Do you are you aware? Yes, you know? yes. Did that in happen? My, in my opinion, in my opinion, which doesn't mean much, I guess. I believe that the first officer was still upset with the captain mm-hmm. and he made the personal decision on his own not to participate in the procedure and mm-hmm. he did not and he did not call out the altitude. Oh, man. That is correct. That's such a well that's something that they need to, you know, play for people at flight training schools that, you know, discord well, in the know, cockpit can, you know, yeah. There's no point I uh, like I'm I'm sure that was a you know awful mistake. I thought when I was reading it, I thought that maybe they were straining to look outside and knew that they were very close to the ground and were shocked that the fog was as bad as it was. That that kind of well, distracted them and I'm, maybe like pulled his mindset out of oh I'm supposed to be calling out altitudes. Well I'm shocked at the fact that we're as close to the ground and I still can't see the ground. That's my assumption, what, but I I could have been wrong. What what also on the CVR recording is that when the captain does say, we're, this is the approach to the goddamn, you know, we're cleared on the right, we're cleared on the right, this mm-hmm. is the approach to the goddamn left. Yeah. Immediately, the first officer says, the other runway. And the second officer also says, the other runway. The right runway, yeah. Right. So so it's all becoming aware, but by that time, it's too late, you know. Mm-hmm. If the truck, if the truck, that the first truck we hit that took our right landing gear off. Yeah had been 10 feet more forward, uh-huh. we would have totally Cleared missed it. it. None yeah. of this would have happened. The, the oh, flight man. would have went, uh, done a, uh, a go-around, and uh, it would have eventually have landed, and mm-hmm. none of this would have ever occurred. So, so based on what you're saying, they have the f- lights on this runway. 
you said the Mexicano flight landed on 23L. And that is correct. 20 minutes earlier, this plane lands on 23L. They have the lights on. Uh, and then in that time period between that plane landing, they decide to put an excavator and a dump truck out on this runway, leave the lights on, tell another plane that give them an approach for 23L, and then don't realize until eight seconds or you know a few seconds before the plane's about to touch down on 23L that, whoa, there's a dump truck out there. Uh, you got it. That's exactly what happened. Uh, you you guys aren't cleared for that. This is closed. So he realized, <laughs> oh, man, that just sounds so disappointing, so upsetting. Oh, yeah. You're t- and like I said, you know, you, you're talking, you know, and it gets even worse when you start to learn about the people that died on this plane. We're talking, you know, the, my crew were, were just children. The, mm-hmm. the youngest flight attendant was 20 years old, mm-hmm. 20 years old. And uh, five of the crew members of the flight attendants were under the probation period, meaning they had been with the company for a period of less than six months. And therefore, they were not covered by any insurance. Mm-hmm. And the only alternative that their families had, they could not sue, was workman's compensation. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. it seems like the Mexican government was worried immediately. They're like, we're just going to get sued for this. So we don't want to yeah. pay out the money for this. We also don't want Americans that are going to fly here for you know, fun to be scared about flying here. So exactly. If, if we so, tell so them let's, everything let's, that let's, happened, then it's so a lose for everybody. First off, no one's going to want to come here. We're going to have to pay suits. There's going to be discord. Mm-hmm. We just struck a agreement with the American government that you guys could, you, you know, get our gas, our natural gas and our petroleum. Mm-hmm. So if we just come up with this story, the only people that'll be negatively impact are gone already. Uh, Your airline will get better business. We'll have tourism booming down here. Americans will still feel safe about flying into Mexico. And the American government, you just be quiet because we just gave you a bunch of natural resources. Yep, you got it. Sounds that's 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 it in a nutshell. And and not only that, they they told me to keep my mouth shut. Yeah. Well. Unfortunately, uh, I wasn't. uh, I wasn't ready to do that because my friends. And it would their be families difficult. Deserve, uh, it would be impossible to keep your mouth shut if you n- knew the truth and you you were friends with all these people. You're friends with the pilots, and you don't want their families um, not to have access to what actually happened. Well, now you now you know part of the reason why uh, what drove me to almost insanity. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And that's uh, and until I uncovered the truth and was able to do it, like I said before, you know, you look online. What's interesting is you look online even now. Mm-hmm. Everything points to, back to me, to my websites, to my information. Why am I the flight attendant, the surviving flight attendant, the most knowledgeable person with all the information, the CVR recording on this incident? Shouldn't it be the NTSB? Shouldn't it be the FAA? Shouldn't it be all the experts? But yet, uh, yet, it, even to this day, almost 40 years later, this Halloween will be 40 years, it still, uh, it, it still points to me. It's never mm-hmm. been, uh, I think that's, that's pretty incredibly ridiculous. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the truth of it. That's the reality of it. Yeah. Well, I think you've, uh, led a virtuous life. You've you know well. <laughs> fought for truth. You had a traumatic event. You didn't pack it in. You didn't give up. You kept on pressing ahead. I think it's 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 uh, commendable that you've 
fought the good fight and you know fought for truth fought for peace for the families to at least get the yeah. truth you know i'm sure the pilots did some things that were wrong on the flight you know and i'm sure uh-huh. there some regrets they obviously had a fight and they weren't communicating well with one another and they could have helped each other better but to you know put something as one dimensional out there as oh it's the pilot's it, fault close the book exactly. doesn't tell the whole story exactly you're correct and uh like i said i i got the satisfaction of knowing uh i told the truth and uh and you know i sit here on my tropical island and life's been good for me since, uh, <laughs> since that yeah it's been it's, it's been okay what do you, what is it like now when you fly is it uh uh an ordeal or you've have you flown so much in your life that you're just comfortable with it well no now it's it's obvious to me that i i will not die in a plane crash Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll probably slip on a bar of soap in my shower and crack my head. Or something <laughs> but uh, again, it's uh, you know, it's 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 put aside. The most difficult thing that I always had, the preparation for Halloween and all the stores, you know, preparing for Halloween, that used to cause me the the biggest uh, the biggest problem. And uh, but once I had my children, then Hollywood, Hollywood, Halloween became about them again. Mm-hmm. And as I was able to get the information out, I was able to to tell the truth. Uh, of course, that all of that was healing, healing process. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I most likely, by the grace of God, will live a long life. And uh, I'm very happy here on in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, I'm very grateful. And and I've come. You know, I I think I mentioned to you before. This this process is kind of like a double-edged sword. The mm-hmm. first side of the sword has a tremendous amount of pain and, 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 and suffering that you have to, to endure and persevere through. But once you go to the peak of it, the other side reveals a tremendous amount of wisdom, a tremendous mm-hmm. amount. I've changed my whole outlook on life and where my life goes. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a very beautiful experience now. And knowing, you know, when you, uh, when you, face, when you face death, you, uh, it, it changes your entire outlook in life. I think that you uh, definitely have had to tackle a bigger challenge than your average human being. And I think it's impressive that you, you know, put out this book and were able to just move on. And I feel like we all, we all have challenges in life. You know, we're all going to have professional disappointments. We're going to have, you know, the death of loved ones and we're going to have, you know, health issues. And I think uh, your book is a, serves as an inspiration for people to realize that if Eduardo Valenciana can, you know, get out of bed every day and make the world a better place and push on and never, ever give up, then we can too. I think it's pretty impressive that you were, you went through something as traumatic as you did and you came out on the other side and still, you know, get up and go to battle every day. I'd like to say that my book is available on Amazon uh, also, people can visit uh, jumpseat2605.com, and there's a lot more information concerning the incident uh, at tresbros.com, T-R-E-S-B-R-O-S.com, and uh, in the section that says, what happened to flight 2605? That sounds great. Well, thank you, Eduardo Valenciana. Again, his book is Jump Seat, A Tale of Twisted Fate. It was an Interesting book and an inspirational book. Thanks again, Eduardo. Thank you so much, Michael. 
Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Plane Crash Podcast. I'd like to thank Eduardo Valenciana for sharing his story with us. It was very motivating. He's a good man. Um, You should all pick up his book on Amazon, Jump Seat, A Tale of Twisted Fate. I'd like to thank our producer, Tess Andrade. And I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in and listening and reviewing and rating our uh, podcast. We appreciate your time and attention. And I hope you all have an amazing week and you're booking a trip to go somewhere cool very soon because you deserve it. I will talk to you very soon. I hope you have a good week. Bye-bye.